Greetings, everyone. You're listening to Art Hour on KYRS, Medical Lake Spokane, 88.1 and 92.3 FM. We are still locked out of the studio for social distancing. So we uh, last week put together a show where we asked people about the first time that they went public with their art, and we got a great show out of that. And this week we asked people about an obstacle that they had come across in their lives, but they had overcome. We got eight people to respond to that question. We got some great stories today. We also have one extra question, somebody who uh, turned in their story a little after we had put the last um, episode to bed. So at the end of that show, we're going to have Laura Gosselin Harris talking about the first time she went public with her uh, improv. Uh, Again, this week, we had some people recorded while they were driving their car. Some people recorded it in their home studio. We had a little bit of everything in between. You can hear cars revving at times. Um, So sometimes the the audio might not be perfect, but it's going to be some great stories. I've listened to them all, and they're wonderful. So thank you for the uh, contributing, everybody. And then uh, for next week, what I would like to do is I would like to hear some stories about the proudest moment that you've had in your artistic life. It could be something early in your career where you realize that you you wanted to do art for a lot of your life or for a living. It could be a moment where you realize that all the pain and effort and sacrifice you had put into your art had finally paid off or somewhere in between. It could be a small moment where maybe um, somebody in your life was finally proud of you maybe for the first time and you realized that you had you had made the right choice or it could be uh, an accolade that you earned or it could be when you got your... your um, first letter that you had been published, or maybe it was a a nice email or a letter you received from somebody about the impact that your art had had on them. So, um, And it could be more than one if you have those stories, but uh, what are some moments, some triumphant moments that have made you uh, really proud of yourself and proud of your art and you realize that you had made the right choice? And I, I have solicited some stories, but also if there's somebody listening who has a story, if you say, I know that, that story, really all that you need to do is record it on your phone or the simplest place you can record something and um, send it to arthour509 at gmail.com. Just send it to arthour509 at gmail.com. I edit these on Wednesday morning, so if you could get it to me anytime before a Wednesday morning, I would love to hear your story. So, uh, without further ado, we're going to start uh, with Jessica Watson. Uh, She is a comedian, and I'm going to let everybody else introduce themselves. So, we're going to start the show, and I hope to uh, be back here with some great stories about your proudest, most triumphant moments uh, in your artistic lives next week. Here we go. So uh, this was kind of an interesting thing to think about, uh, to share my story. Um, I'm glad you asked me. Uh, There might be a little bit of a dog snoring in the background, and I apologize for that. Uh, Quarantine has worn her out a little bit. (laughs) Um, So my name is Jessica Watson. I've been doing stand-up comedy for at least a couple years, and... uh, Today I'm going to be sharing with you the greatest obstacle that I've had to face as an artist and uh, how I overcame that. So when I think back, I really can't remember a time when I didn't love uh, comedy. Um, I loved all sorts of comedy. I especially loved SNL, the SNL skits that they would come up with. I to be honest, couldn't believe that it was a job because making people laugh was so fun and it was the thing that I liked to do the most. So I, I was astounded when I found out it was a job. Um, I knew that's what I really wanted to do, but I hate public speaking. Um, most people hate public speaking. And in fact, if you're ever in a job interview and they ask you what your greatest weakness is or the thing that you find the most difficult, if you say public speaking, uh, odds are the interviewer will commiserate with you and uh, you won't get dinged as much. It's something that most people, I think, have in common. And for the love of comedy, I had to get around it. So 
there's a lot of tips and tricks. Um, people will always say like, oh, just, you know, picture the audience naked. And I think that's just such, it's terrible advice. Um, cause when you do stand up comedy, you can't see the audience. So it's, it's totally different. I think than people think it is when you stand on stage, there are these bright lights on you and you really can't see out very far into the audience. You can maybe see the first couple rows. And you, the only reason you know people are out there is because you can kind of hear them laughing. So it's kind of like you're, you're up there just telling jokes to an abyss. And when I, I was a kid, I was, I had terrible social anxiety and I, hated doing any sort of speeches. Um, I think that it's still part of the curriculum, but in fourth grade on, it's like every year you have to give a speech. Starting in fourth grade, every year you give a speech. And my teachers always argued that it's a necessary life skill. I'm not honestly sure it still needs to be part of the curriculum. If I, I've never used public speaking skills in my professional life, and I... If I didn't do stand-up comedy, I would never do it. Um, so you'd get a lot of advice from people. They'd say, well, you know, you're just telling jokes to strangers. It doesn't matter. And, uh, you know, screw them. Just get up there and be, you know, who you are and tell your jokes. It's like, this is for you. Um. And so when I started out, I was just terribly nervous. I would go up there and I would, I, I hated the silence. So the silence is the hardest thing to get used to. So I would hate the silence. And some of the best advice I got was that you have to start to be comfortable with the silence. So you do all these really rough open mics they're always in a bar it's always your friend that's running it and nobody loves you the whole thing about comedy is that uh nobody cares what you look like they care if you make them laugh so to kind of get around this I knew some things I knew I knew for example that uh my friends found me funny so I knew my friends would find me funny and I knew that if one of my friends through a house party, I could come over and I could have a drink and that would help me talk to strangers and that I could make people laugh. I knew I could do those things. So I had to get that to translate into the stage. So I could go to an open mic and I could have a drink and that would loosen me up and then I could talk to people. But what was uncomfortable, what's uncomfortable about public speaking is that you're often speaking to total strangers. And when I was at my friend's house parties where people thought I was funny, I had a drink and I was talking to my friends. People I was comfortable with that I already had an established relationship with that I knew found me funny. And that's the confidence that I had to find on stage. So what I kind of started doing is I would, and I don't need the drink anymore. I would have the drink or not, but I would go up and I would just kind of start talking to the audience as if they were already my friends. And through that, I just found... I found that confidence and it's, it's funny because if you're confident, you can kind of deliver any message and people will, people will follow it. They'll take it because that's what people want is that confidence. So that's how I got around it. I just started talking to the audience as though they were already my friends. And, uh, I hope that, I hope that someone somewhere can take this advice and that it serves you well. Um, so yeah, thank you for letting me share my story. Hope you enjoyed it.
My name is Chris Dennison. I'm a writer. Uh, I have a young adult novel called You and Me and Him, and I've published some short stories and essays in various places. Um, and I'm here to talk about the biggest obstacle in my creative life. And probably the biggest obstacle in my creative life is my own brain. Or, if I'm more accurate, the fearful part of my brain. Um, for as long as I remember, my brain has been trying to get me to stop doing risky stuff like writing things and then showing that writing to other humans. And for most of my life, it was pretty successful in keeping me from doing that. Um, I honestly didn't even try and write fiction until I was in my 40s, and it was a really long time after that before I showed it to anyone. Now, I understand my brain was just trying to protect me. Um, I was pretty terrified of rejection, and for a long time, I really believed that I wasn't strong enough to handle it. But then something sort of terrifying and also sort of magical happened. I applied for an MFA program, and I didn't get in. Now, I say terrifying because, of course, my fearful brain said, see, I told you so. This is hard. This is why we shouldn't do things like this. Let's never do anything like this again. And it was hard, but it was also not as bad as I thought it would be. And that was the sort of magical part for me. So after that rejection, I decided that I wanted to try to write anyway. And I did a lot, a lot, a lot of really, really bad writing. Um, but I live in a pretty amazing writing community here in Spokane, Washington, and uh, people were so kind, and they helped me make my writing better, and they taught me so many things about writing, and I'm still learning every day from the amazing people I get to be in community with here. Um, and I've even had some things published. Like I said, I have a novel that came out in 2015, and uh, I published some short stories and some other pieces. Um, but mostly, as most writers know, um, mostly I've gotten rejections. So, so many rejections. Uh, my novel alone was rejected 36 times. I've received a bunch of rejections from magazines and journals, and my agent has rejected the last four novels I've sent her. And I'm not going to lie, the rejections sting. They are not easy. But I've also learned that they're just part of the process. Um, and now I see them as evidence that I'm putting my work out there. Um, and I try and frame those rejections as uh, just positive things that I'm doing the work and I'm putting it out there. I'm a, actually a part of a, a Facebook group called 100 Rejections, which um, aims, everyone in the group is aiming to get 100 rejections this year, um, which is a nice way to kind of turn it on its head and on the page, if you get a rejection, you brag about it and everyone cheers you on. And if you get an acceptance, everyone commiserates and says better luck next time. So that's kind of a fun way to address it. But um, but every time I get one of those rejections, my brain uh, tries to remind me that we don't have to do this and it would be a lot less painful if we didn't. And could we please just stop because it's really scary. So I have to sit down with it and remind it that everything's going to be okay. I tell it I love to write and that the publishing part is just frosting on the cake, cheese was on the cracker, whatever metaphor you want to use. Um, and I reminded that I'm going to keep going, even if I'm scared. Um, there's a great book that I highly recommend to anyone who struggles with fear and creativity. It's called Big Magic by Elizabeth Gilbert. And yes, it is the Eat, Pray, Love Elizabeth Gilbert. But I have to tell you, I've really come to respect her as a writer of this book on creativity. Um, I have read probably four times since it came out. And uh, her novel, The Signature of All Things, is one of those novels that I tell everyone about who will be patient enough to listen. So if you think Elizabeth Gilbert's Just Eat, Pray, Love, you should check her out. Anyway, I digress. Um, she has this great bit in this book where she talks about whenever she and cre creativity decide to take a trip together, she invites fear along because she knows fear will be there anyway. And she tells fear that it can come, but it has to sit in the back seat and it can't touch the radio and it definitely isn't allowed to drive. And I love this bit. It's really helped me start to love and appreciate my fear but also give me ways to give it sort of boundaries when I'm writing. Like, you have to go over there and sit in the corner. You don't get to tap on the keyboard kind of thing. So, anyway, um, just before uh, life turned upside down for all of us and the world became a viral hot box and all the things are happening, and about a month ago, I got another rejection from my agent for the novel that I've been working on for a little over a year. 
And I had high hopes for this one, but she just wasn't connecting with it. And that's just part of that relationship. It's my job to write the stuff. It's her job to um, tell me the truth about whether or not she thinks she can sell it. And in this case, it just wasn't working. Um, but because life has changed so much in the last month, uh, my fearful little brain has so much else to worry about that the rejection hasn't even really been that painful or it hasn't really registered or whatever. Um, and I'm kind of hoping that my brain will stay distracted long enough with other worries to let me start this new project that I've been thinking about. Probably not, but I'm going to try anyway. Um, and I, so I guess in closing, I just want to say this, this has been and is an ongoing and will probably always be an ongoing obstacle for me in my creative life. And I have by no means overcome it, um, except to say that I do the work anyway. And that's the part for me that feels like a victory. Um, I haven't gotten rid of the fear. I don't know if I ever will. I'm a worrier by nature. Um, but uh, if I can push through and do the work anyway, um, then I feel like that's that's success for me. So anyway, thank you so much. And I hope you're all out there making stuff. Goodbye. Hey, KYRS listeners and listeners of Art Hour Radio. This is Leah Satilli. I'm dispatching to you from Portland, Oregon, where I live now. Um, I am really excited to be on the show today. I used to live in Spokane for a really long time, and I hosted a couple of radio programs late at night on KYRS. Um, so I'm happy to be here, and I'm happy to hear that KYRS is still going strong, even in this time of global pandemic. So um, a little bit about me. I'm a freelance journalist. I got my start in Cheney, Washington as a news reporter, and then I worked for a long time as a staff writer at The Inlander right there in Spokane. And today um, I was asked to talk a little bit about the biggest obstacle that I've faced in my artistic career um, as a writer and as a journalist. And it's not really hard actually for me to figure out um, what to talk about because the biggest obstacle I think I've faced in my career is myself. And I think um, sometimes it's hard to get out of our own way, to stop judging our work or editing our work, and um, most importantly, commodifying our work and thinking about how to make it sellable and how to make it marketable to uh, someone to pay for it. Um, so I think that as soon as I was able to figure out how to get out of my own way, I saw my writing opening up in ways that um, really were positive for me as a writer, but also positive for people who read it and, and could see the honesty and authenticity in it. Um, but probably the biggest obstacle I faced beyond myself was not caring what other people thought of my writing. Um, that can be something that is applied to creative writing, but also to journalistic writing. As a journalist, it is really difficult to learn how to not be liked. And that means not being liked by people who read the things that you produce, people on the internet who don't read the things you produce and prejudge it, but sometimes also the people who edit your work and the people who um, are your colleagues in the industry. Um, I think as soon as I realized that I didn't need to be liked and that my job as a journalist was to tell the stories of the people that I interview with uh, the most amount of truth that I could, that that's ultimately what matters. Um, and I think that that also applies to creative work too, that sometimes the work that we do that is risky or creative or authentic to us um, is offensive to other people or is just difficult for other people to see. And I think the message I want to send out into the world is that you have to be true to yourself with the work that you do, no matter if it's writing or painting or sculpting or performance art. And I think that Spokane is filled with so many people who taught me exactly how to do that, how to just be my most authentic self as a writer and to write first and foremost for me um, when I'm writing creatively, and second, when I'm writing journalistically, to write for the people who are affording me the privilege of telling their story. 
So anyway, I hope that's helpful, and I can't wait to hear about the obstacles other artists face. I think a lot of times we can learn a lot from each other, and it doesn't really matter the medium that we're working in. Um, we can learn a lot and hear a lot about our own processes, sometimes in the words of other people. So for now, I'll leave it there, and I hope everyone in Spokane is well and safe, and don't touch your face. You're listening to KYRS, Medical Lake Spokane, 88.1 and 92.3 FM. Art Hour receives support from South Perry Pizza, featuring rotating local artists and serving hand-tossed artisan pizza, beer, and wine at 1011 South Perry Street and online at southperrypizzaspokane.com. We got the blues Hang out with me, Jukebox Jenny, on Sundays from 6 to 8 p.m. to hear America's very own music, the blues. Let me help you shake the trouble out with a mix of funk, R&B, and blues from Delta to Chicago. You'll hear... Don't forget to shake your rump, too. It's a cocktail that will soothe the soul. Working Women's Blues, Sunday nights, 6 to 8 p.m., right here on KYRS. Art Hour relies on support from listeners like you. Just $3 a month helps keep KYRS going strong, and you can help by texting Give KYRS to 44321. That's all one word Give KYRS to 44321. Hi, this is Brooke Matson, Executive Director of Spark Central. And I, um, my biggest obstacle in my artistic life has always been time. I think time is one of the it is the most precious resource that we have because you cannot buy more of it. And, um, you know, it's so precious. It's why people, you know, say youth is wasted on the young. And I've really tried in my life to maximize my time, um, which has always been difficult when I was a teacher. You know, um, public school teachers work so hard and they're always planning, grading, Um, helping students even, you know, when they're off the clock um, and on the weekends and in their summers, they are still working. Um, So that was a challenge then. And um, as an executive director, it continues to be a challenge. Um, You know, Spark is, um, it's our whole team works really hard and we're all busy all of the time. And so I think for me, some tactics that I've found, I don't know if I'll ever overcome the challenge of not having enough time, but three things have helped. Um, the first thing is to set a timer and do that with discipline. Um, so when I'm going to write, I set a timer and I say I have one hour or two hours, or um, honestly, there are days when I'm like, I have 15 minutes. And I set the timer and I start writing or doing whatever artistic creative task I want to do. And I keep, I require myself to stay within that time limit. I can go beyond it if I want to keep going, but I'm not allowed to leave early before the timer goes off. Um, so that takes discipline, but it works. And honestly, when the timer's running, you feel like you can forget about everything else because, you know, I, if I set the timer for 30 minutes... I know I have at least 30 minutes before I have to start getting ready for work to make it to my first meeting on time. So, um, you know, that timer is also like a trust mechanism that that time is yours until that bell rings. So number one's a timer. Number two, um, I have just made a decision that it's okay to suck at social media. <laughs> um, I don't know how people honestly keep up on everything. Um, I So I got off Facebook two years ago, and I was off for about a year. And um, I just got back on like six months ago or so. Um, and in the year of being off Facebook, my time 
I had so much more time, like so much more. And even though I had Instagram, I was, I mean, honestly, weeks would go by before I would post a picture, you know, unless I was on vacation, you know, and I, I do think that like social media, it's a great way to stay connected and be in the know on things. Um, the trouble is it can just suck all of your free time. And, you know, people are always amazed that I can like, I've had some people say like, I don't know how you like wrote a poetry manuscript while you're running an organization, while you're doing all these other things. And honestly, it's because I suck at social media. (laughs) I don't post things very often. I don't know what people have been doing with their kids or where they've gone on vacation. But the nice thing is I, I have, it's made my interactions more authentic. Like when I run into people, I'm like, oh, I haven't seen you in a while. And and sometimes they'll be like, well, I'm sure you saw all the pictures on Facebook. And I'm like, oh, actually, no, tell me about it. You know, and it just kind of forces a more organic conversation. Um, I've started to get more, started interacting on Facebook more. So maybe that will change. But um it is one of the best time savers to force yourself to get off social media. Although right now in COVID-19, I wouldn't recommend that because it's kind of how we're all staying sane. Um, the third thing I would say is um, I am a huge believer in outsourcing. And by outsourcing, I mean that anything that you don't have to physically do yourself, if you can afford to pay someone to do it or trade for it, um, that is, if, if it saves you time, it's worth it. Like I used to be really into yard work and gardening. And I think I would still would if I had limitless time, but um, I don't. <laughs> and so what I end up doing is paying the neighbor kids to do jobs for me to, um, I still mow the lawn um, because I feel like I should at least be able to do that. But there's a lot of tasks where, yes, I could do it. It's totally within my skill set, but I just don't have time. And I'm willing to pay to get that time. Because again, I think time is the most precious resource. I've also, um, I've paid people to help me with personal admin work, like not, not at Spark Central, but like admin work as far as like submission preparation and proofreading and um, sending my stuff off to different, you know, journals and things. Um, It takes so much time that I don't have and I want to be successful at it. And I know that anybody could take my poems and like put them into a PDF and send them off. And so I've actually paid people to do that for me. Um, cause I wrote the stuff. I just don't have time to like package it all. So, um, so, so things like that, anything that, you know, and honestly, if I had, if I was a millionaire, I'd probably pay someone to cook for me. <laughs> I do enjoy cooking, but I don't have time to do that either. So, um, I do think if you can outsource something or trade for it, like if, you know, I've never done that, but I would be willing to trade people for, you know, I'll design your book cover. If you'll do this other thing for me that I absolutely hate doing and don't have time for, um, you know, but I do think time is something that if you are going to be creative, you have to make the time to do it. And, um, you have to sacrifice something. So for me, that's social media, um, and, you know, other things that I choose not to do so I can have that, that creative space. is Chris Cook, and I play trumpet with the Spokane Symphony. I teach music at Gonzaga University, and I'm the current Poet Laureate of Spokane. I've been asked to tell a little about um, the biggest obstacle I faced in my artistic life and uh, how I overcame it. Um, Well, I once reached a point in my playing career where I dreaded seeing anything on the page that was softer than a mezzo piano. Um, That means medium soft in Italian. Um, The trumpet is well designed for for power, for majesty, for for everything on the big scale, Um, but maybe not so much uh, on the softer end, at least without doing everything right. 
And I got to a point where I think I was doing everything wrong in order to uh, improve on my soft playing. Uh, the more I uh, focused on the attack or the very first instant of the note, the less chance there was of the note speaking at all. And I found that my range and my flexibility, my tone quality, and my endurance were also becoming compromised. I tried to overcome it by overpowering it with force and with muscle, just like you see with any poster or still image of a famous trumpet player. There's usually uh, a lot of muscle being, uh, being shown off. There's sweat, uh, there's effort. Um, same thing with any musician, probably. You're gonna sell a lot more guitars and drums if the guitarist and the drummer are showing um, extreme effort, um, extreme drama, extreme emotion. Um, and so I, I fell into that trap. Um, and it's kind of compounded by the fact that most of the literature, the method and etude books uh, for trumpet um, are very old and they have a kind of um, militaristic approach to, to music. Um, a lot of it actually describes muscle movement and it's uh, kind of regimented stuff. It talks about the percentages of your mouthpiece placement, top and bottom and left and right on, on your face. There's all kinds of really terrible advice um, about your breathing apparatus. Um, and so I'd grown up always looking for exercises that, that fixed problems, something regimented. If you do this, 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 and this, then that problem will go away. Um, and every one of these detours I made led me further into this forest where I continued to only see uh, one tree at a time and after a while it's dark and you're lost and I'm still just manipulating muscle and getting farther away from making music. Uh, at one point I felt like I had become a note maker and not a music maker. Um, it probably started with joining the Spokane Symphony right out of college and uh, feeling some immense pressure like I needed to be um, really perfect among these older pros who, who I really looked up to. Um, same kind of pressure put on myself in recording sessions um, where you feel like you have to be perfect. You don't want to be the one to ruin the take. Um, to this day, I still can't listen to my more recent recordings until enough time has passed for me to forget the inner tumult of, of that particular session. Um, and so eventually I get to where I've forgotten uh, that strain and, and I can enjoy some of those, those recordings. Um, so anyway, something had to change. Um, and so I sought out teachers I trusted and I learned how my breathing apparatus actually worked. And I, I threw away the idea of trying harder um, and improving through strength and brute force. Um, I learned that you can't fill your lungs with air from the bottom up. They're just like balloons and you can't dictate where in the balloon you blow the air. Um, you can't blow from your, your diaphragm. Your diaphragm is an involuntary muscle that only works to help you inhale. You cannot control it. And your shoulders do rise a little bit if you inhale fully. And we're always taught not to lift our shoulders. Anyway, um, that was kind of liberating to learn how my body really works. Um, and so the change came through that and through seeking something as simple as, as finding my most beautiful sound. Um, that the slower I go, the faster I improve. Um, finding the most pure, beautiful, resonant, projecting sound possible on one simple note. Um, and it came through finding freedom in my breath, uh, through wind that was stronger than my muscle, and through feeding this beautiful wind instrument what it needs, which is obviously wind, and uh, to trust the equipment, because the trumpet always wins in the battle against, against the player. Um, 
But if you learn to trust it and to know that centuries went into the design of the instrument, it's just beautiful the way it is. Find ways of getting along with it. Then it will reward you. And it will totally punish you if you feed it the wrong thing. Because if you're putting effort into it, putting grunt in your breath, muscling up everything, it is very good at magnifying the bad stuff and just sending it out into the hall. Um, and it'll also reward you with some, a bunch of garbage and, and hiss in your sound. Um, and, and so simplify, 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 relax, go against what the books and the old teachers say. Um, the less you, the less you uh, are strong in your approach, um, the, the more you will fail, the more often you will fail, and the more the instrument will, uh, will punish you. Um, I embraced lyrical etudes uh, rather than technical ones, and I found that, ironically, the technical stuff came along too. And so now I can see the forest. Um, I start each day by enjoying a nice, fat, low C, which was the first note that ever came out of my horn many, many, many years ago when I learned to play it. And um, in many ways, I'm still improving. And so that's my story. Thanks for listening. My name is Ellen Welker. I'm a poet, and I want to tell two quick stories for today's show about facing obstacles in one's artistic life. Both of these seem small compared to what many artists and people of all walks of life are now facing, so I want to give a quick plug to Spokane Arts and their Spokane Artists and Creatives Emergency Fund, and to Washington State Artist Trust Relief Fund. Find out about both of these aid programs on their respective websites. Okay, first anecdote. I was living on an island in a beach cabin we'd rented for the off-season, it was drafty, to say the least, but I saw some monster sea stars on the beach that fall and winter. The countdown was on. My first baby was due around the end of November, and I'd wanted to make a concerted effort to publish my first book of poems before that happened. I was worried that if the baby came first, the book never would. Dutifully, I followed the advice of my teachers. I compiled a list of 50 small presses that I admired. I tried to sort out where I thought my work might fit in in this constellation of potential publishers and readers. I wrote query letters to 25 of them. I allowed myself a small budget with which to submit to book contests. I tried to navigate which contests I might have a chance with, who was judging, which poets had previously won. Might any of them be interested in publishing a first book by an unknown writer? I submitted all over the place to pie-in-the-sky contests, to contests which I now realize I had no chance with, even to a scam or two. It was a huge learning experience. I began to realize that whether or not my book got picked up, I was creating for myself a web in which to make a home for my writing. This web was filled with presses, journals, and other writers to admire, to write toward, to emulate, converse, disagree with, and to be challenged by. My baby was born December 3rd, 2009, and those first few months were indeed a blur of falling in love and of learning how to keep us both alive. I don't remember now if I kept submitting my book manuscript or if I just hoped that the work I'd done prior to my baby's arrival would pay off, or if all my book dreams had been replaced by the desire to sleep, honestly. But when my baby was four months old, I received an email from Duncan Barlow at Astrophil Press that a poet I had long admired, Eleni Sicilianos, who wrote the California poem, among many other books, had selected my manuscript for the Astrophil Press Poetry Prize, and that they would like to publish my book, The Botanical Garden. What a dream, what a stroke of luck, what a lesson in the usefulness of self-imposed deadlines. My second story is my story of moving to Spokane. About eight years ago, we needed to leave Seattle for a variety of reasons that aren't mine to disclose, but that also had to do with desiring the kind to create the kind of life we could manage without a ton of time spent in traffic, excessive workloads, and that 
we could afford. My husband had an interview in Spokane, and it looked pretty good on paper, though people said vaguely concerning things like, it's a great place to raise kids. What does that mean exactly? And do you like lakes? I prefer rivers. Packing up our life in Seattle meant saying goodbye to the only poetry community I'd ever spent real in-person time with, and leaving my job working for the small but mighty poetry press, Wave Books. I knew we needed to do it, but I admit that in those days, I thought my life as an artist was over. I assumed, as I am embarrassed to admit I have always assumed when faced with moving to a new town, that I would have to start over from the bottom and work my way back to the kind of life I wanted through years of low-paying service jobs. My husband calls this my Arby's mindset. Side note, there's nothing wrong with working at Arby's, but that's not what this story is about. Those early months in Spokane were spent being seven and eight and nine months pregnant for the second time, and then falling in love with our new baby and learning how to keep us all alive all over again. But a few months later, lonely for writing and writers, I decided to do something rash. I decided to start a monthly reading series in my living room. I knew I wasn't going to get out much with small kids, but I knew if I didn't find myself a writing community soon, I would die of an Arby's mindset of my own making. So I made a list of all the Spokane writers whose work I admired, and another list of all the regional writers I wanted to see read in Spokane, and I sent out invitations. And to my surprise, people came. Though every month I worried no one would, Every month, writers brought their stunning, weird, funny, devastating poems to read in my living room. And every month, people came to my house and sat on my couch and floor and gave them their attention. I met so many friends this way. I met so many writers I admire this way. I remain in profound gratitude to Spokane's literary community for giving me a chance, for showing up, for making a home for me inside my own home. Reimagined. You're invited to cruise Americana Avenue with me, Jim Tate, in your car or at the office, each Tuesday from 2 to 4 p.m. You'll hear the best and progressive American roots music in a multitude of styles. It's Americana Avenue on your radio station, KYRS. Hello, my name is Chris Malsum. I am a uh, audio engineer. I have worked at the Bartlett, and I currently work at Lucky You Lounge. I am a writer, performer, and bandit train currently, and I have been in other acts such as Friends of Mine, and Newman, and Boys Night. Along with music, I also draw and make animations. One of the big challenges I face in my art is just um, getting a project finished. And it's a combination of, you know, small obstacles kind of combined to make up this one big challenge that I face. When I first started making music, I was in ninth grade and I had made, um, I made this two disc album and uh, just kind of for fun and like the songs I didn't really think were that good and they were just they were mostly just funny they were just kind of made as a kind of a joke and when I gave them when I gave the albums to my friends they they actually ended up liking it and like thinking it was good and so for me I thought oh what maybe I could do this more and then I'll so and then I tried to make something that I like, actually put more time and effort into, and then those ended up being uh, songs that people didn't uh, like quite as much. And for that, for me, kind of turned into like just being like too critical on myself, and that's um, one of the aspects of why I um, have a hard time finishing a project. And I guess, you know, to overcome it, you try not to uh, put too much time into the uh, to the writing aspect of it, at least.
another thing about finishing a project for me is uh, I could I could have like a completed animation or a completed work of music and I just don't know how I want to present it to the public there um, there's a sort of a marketing formula now that people tend to do you know they like they do uh, a lot of you know social media promoting and re um, reposting stories of like their friends sharing their work and all that and that's you know it's not a bad it's not bad for artists to do it's kind of you know you have to do it you just have to promote a lot if you want your music to get out there but for me personally that's not something that I kind of work towards I would rather people sort of stumble onto something I've made rather than being handed to them because then it would be they would be kind of like they'd have a sense of discovery about it and to me that makes the project a, a more meaningful than to uh, if I were to over promote it but of course you know if if you're a working artist or musician, that's not necessarily a practical way to go about it. Because I think you know, if you're trying to make money, you have to sort of do the whole marketing thing. But uh, as of lately, the last um, sort of music project I finished a couple years ago was a album I made for Newman, and when I was to finish with the album, you know, you have a, a sense of relief. And it, when you're done with it, it actually, you know, inspires you to kind of to go forward from there. And you're not stuck on something anymore. And that's, you know, that's a great achievement once you complete something that you've been working on. So uh, for me now, that's something that I look forward to when I do overcome these uh, obstacles that I face and you know when I finish my current projects that I'm working on I'll, I can you know move forward from there and continue working on another one Eric Woodard and everybody listening. This is Sarah Waisman, the actress who lives in Los Angeles that was on the show last week. Thanks again for having me back. This is so much fun. Uh, today, I'm going to talk to you about uh, my journey to find where I wanted to live. I grew up in Spokane, Washington, and then I've also lived all over the country um, trying to figure out where I want to settle and established life as an artist. Uh, so yeah, I went to high school in Spokane, Lewis and Clark, and then I went to college uh, at Western Washington University in Bellingham, went for a theater school, and then uh, after I graduated theater school, I, d I decided I wanted to move to New York City because I grew up in the Northwest in this in its own kind of cultural bubble and I, and I wanted to meet people from all over the world and live in this multicultural city. It just sounded so exciting uh, to me. And also I wanted to be a, a serious dramatic actress on Broadway, uh, which is hilarious because now all I do is TV comedy, so life is funny. Um, Maybe I'll do drama again someday, but all I do is comedy these days. <laughs> um, so anyway, I uh, after college, graduating, I spent a year in Bellingham, Washington, just saving money to move to New York City. So I worked at this tequila bar that I worked at all through college, Casa Que Pasa. If you're ever in Bellingham, definitely go there and get a potato burrito and uh, mango margarita and it'll change your life. Uh, so yeah, saved, saved like 5,000 bucks and then moved to New York. And my original plan <laughs> was to move to Manhattan 
and live in a nunnery, which sounds super crazy to anybody who knows me because I'm not a religious person. In fact, I'm an atheist. Um, I have religious friends, don't have a problem with it. But anyway, I am an atheist and I wanted to live in a nunnery only because uh, I was thinking about my financial situation and somebody told me about this place and it was $800 a month to live in the middle of Manhattan, which is like unheard of. Uh, and it's all women stay there, um, all artists. It's mostly just like actors and dancers who live in this in this place. Um, I knew somebody who, who lived there when they first went to New York City and they recommended it to me and I was like, cool, that sounds pretty neat. Um, but it would have been a terrible idea, actually. I, I Looking back on it, I would have hated it. Uh, they had a curfew of 11 p.m. in New York City. That's just ridiculous. Uh, that's like dinner time in New York. Uh, so, yeah, I just... Um, anyway, I was all signed up to... to, to move to this nunnery <laughs> uh but life happened and i actually started dating somebody that i dated in college we got back together and uh long story short he ended up uh following me to new york city it, it was my dream and and he wanted to do but he wanted to do something exciting and different with his life and and so that sounded fun fun for him and we were in love so anywho we so i dropped the nunnery idea <laughs> Oh gosh, sometimes I think about my life and it's like if I if I lived in that nunnery and didn't date this guy, like how different would my life? It would probably be completely different. Uh but anyway, I ended up dating this guy and we moved to New York City together. And uh yeah, it, we had a lot of fun at first. I really loved New York, but unfortunately, he hated it absolutely hated it and complained about it all the time and it was just miserable living with a person who hated being in that city who called it like a prison sentence <laughs> oh gosh so anyway uh i was young and dumb and super in love and blind and insecure and all the things and decided to leave new york to save our relationship so that's what we did we we moved across the country yet again together, and this time we moved to uh, Bellingham, Washington, back to our college town, and uh, kind of just settled in there. And at the time, I was like kind of sad to move your New York to New York City, but in the back of my mind, I, I I'd always wanted to live in L.A. So I was like, well, you know, tried New York, didn't really work out so uh LA will be the next adventure so that was my plan and uh anyway that was the plan for us but then we ended up realizing we're not meant to be thank goodness and uh we're still great friends to these to this day we just weren't meant to be together but uh anyway we broke up and then I didn't want to live in the same town as as him a small town just running into my ex all the time would just be so hard so I didn't know what to do I didn't have any money I wanted to move to LA but I couldn't yet because I was broke so I moved back in with my parents and in Spokane Washington and I just uh, I, I I was I guess this was my rock bottom because I just felt like lost and I just felt like it was going to take me a while to, to to get my life back together. And unfortunately, it didn't take that long. I was only living with my parents for about two months uh, when I finally got enough money to, to move to L.A. Uh, yeah, and the <laughs> I, I first started making a little bit of money at Nine Bar, which is a fantastic bar in Spokane. I had a great time, and everyone who worked there was so supportive. I think I was a terrible cocktail waitress, but they were so nice to me and let me work there for a bit. Uh, but anyway, um, so then I I was just like, I'll have to work here for like six months or more to make enough money to move to L.A. I was broke, and I just felt stuck and stranded and kind of hopeless. Um just started getting really depressed 
and uh, sitting around at my parents' house, and it, I got so depressed that like my body changed. It, 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 my body transformed. I used to be an athlete. I was very muscular and fit, and then I just sat on the couch and cried, <laughs> and just in my body uh, looked totally different after a couple months. I like lost all muscle tone, and I got skinny. And I didn't look healthy because I wasn't. I wasn't happy. Uh, so anyway, I uh, something kind of turned it all around. Uh, I, I started hanging out with these two fifty-five-year-olds that I like. Basically, my 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 really great friend's mom. I would hang out with her all the time, and her best friend. Uh, and so, because I didn't have any, I like did barely had any friends uh, in Spokane still uh, from high school. So I would just like hang out with these 55 year olds all the time as a 25 year old. It made me feel like special. Uh, (laughs) So anyway, I hung out with them all the time and um, uh, I ended up selling a couple paintings to to one of them uh, who liked my artwork. I, I also paint acrylic on canvas. And I think these these two individuals, my friends, they really wanted to help me out. Um, so one of them bought a couple paintings from me, these two five by ten foot uh, acrylic paintings, and I made two thousand dollars. It was so exciting, and and finally I had a big piece of hope to bite into. Uh, <laughs> and uh, with that money, I was I took off a week later and left for Los Angeles. Uh, so, yeah. And then my dad bought my sister's car from her and gave it to me. And I drove that car to Los Angeles. So I, I felt very supportive by people in my life at that moment. And I felt ready for the next step. So then I moved to Los Angeles. And uh, I first uh, stayed with a friend from college who had a roommate. And, oh boy, I ended up uh, dating his roommate. And... It just happened all so fast, uh, and we ended up dating seriously for three years. Um, I definitely don't recommend that. This is my PSA. Don't move to a new city and start dating someone immediately. It's a terrible idea. <laughs> oh, boy. But, yeah, that's how I was That's how I was back then. I was um, codependent and insecure and, you know, just didn't really have a lot of direction. My parents met when they were 18, uh, and have been together ever since, and they're happy. So, like, that was the story I was told. I was told, you know, to, like, find a, a man and then start your life together. That's kind of what I thought I had to do. And that's not how it has to be. Uh, and it's not like my parents were telling me to do that. They were actually like, no, get your life together. <laughs> but, <laughs> um, but, yeah, I was just naive, you know, and that's what happens. And uh, and when you're in your 20s, you don't know what you're doing. 20s are so hard. Every Anyone who's listening to this who's in your 20s, like, just hang on. It'll be fine. It's crazy. Life is fun and terrifying. But when you're in your 30s, like, it'll get much better. Trust me. Uh, <laughs> so anyway, I, I dated this guy and and again, it was another kind of relationship where we couldn't grow and be better humans. We were like the worst versions of ourselves uh, when we were together. I don't blame him. I don't blame me. It was just, it was just a recipe for disaster. And um, I learned a lot from it. It's not like I regret being in that relationship, but uh, I didn't really start my career until that relationship ended. I think I was so. Uh, my life was so static and I was not, I wasn't happy. I, I wasn't able to have any sort of momentum because, um, 
just kind of let everybody else make decisions for me and I didn't really take control of my life until I started going to see a therapist and therapy changed my life it just completely changed my life around I feel like almost like a different like I was reborn after going through therapy and and I have this whole new set of ideals and what I want out of life and how to take control and anyway basically therapy saved my life uh and through that, I realized I, sh- I should not be in this relationship, and I broke up with the dude. And then after, like, a week after breaking up with him. So the last, like, year of our relationship, I didn't get a single audition. I was just really struggling to just start acting. I just felt like I wasted so much time just, like, moving around and I just felt so restless and anxious and I just wanted to work but because I was so unhappy I was bringing this energy into the audition rooms of just just this I was just this depressed person and it's like nobody wants to work with a depressed person even if I was doing a good job acting I just brought in this weird energy to the room uh so anyway after I broke up with him I got an acting job a week later. (laughs) I suddenly got an audition after like a year. And it was like the universe was telling me like, good job, you're doing it right. Uh, So anyway, I got a Geico commercial. And that's what I talked about last week. It's (laughs) that commercial changed my life in so many ways. It's it's wild. Um, uh, So anyway, got that commercial. And then like a, a couple weeks after that I got cast uh in the superhero show The Flash uh and then flew to Vancouver Canada they flew me there to to shoot it and uh it was just so wild my life just completely transformed I was so much happier and I was bringing that good energy into the audition rooms and and all of a sudden I was just getting cast like crazy. And then this momentum just kept moving me forward. And and then from there, my career took off. It was wild. It was like years of being depressed and anxious and feeling lost. And then finally, when I went to therapy and started to really look at the core issues behind everything was I able to like take the reins and control my life uh and and yeah and then from there I was on a bunch of tv shows and I feel and I'm a full-time working actress um now and and that was a, a quick progression so yeah I just learned so much about how to be a a functioning adult and how to be a healthy person. And uh, I really have therapy to thank for that. Uh, And the guy that bought my painting for $2,000. That that actually (laughs) got me to go to L.A. a lot quicker than I thought I would. So, yeah, it's just um, I've become a much stronger person lots of rapid growth uh and i guess that's what happens when you move across the country twice uh in three years (laughs) um but yeah i'm so happy right now it's fun to look back on my life back then and how confused and kind of miserable i was um it's not like i wasn't enjoying life i was having a lot of fun but i was just so tortured by decisions and what to do and now in my 30s I'm just like sitting back and loving it and just I just love my life I can't believe I'm I'm here (laughs) I mean I can't I can but uh it's even better than I than I ever imagined it I have such a cool life here so um yeah anyway that's that's my story and um yeah, if you want to look me up uh, on IMDb to see the stuff I've done, um, you can. My name is Sarah Waisman. Last name is W-A-I-S-M-A-N. Um, yeah, that's it. Thanks so much, guys. Bye-bye. Stay healthy. I can't.
remember exactly when I, like the first moment I ever stepped on stage for improv. My name is Laura Goslin Harris, and I started doing improvisational comedy with group people, like in the form of like, you know, whose lines in anyway, in 1988, which is crazy. Um, but I do remember why I started doing improv. There was this super hot guy, and uh, his name was John Roderick, and he's actually over in Seattle. And um, I just saw him on stage, and he was so funny, and just at my tender age of 18 slash 19, so incredibly sexy. I was just like, I just want to meet him. And I didn't, I mean, I'd done some plays and stuff, but I'd never done improv before. And it was the second year of Gonzaga University's group Guts, which was Gonzaga University Theater Sports. And I was, again, just trying to get to know this guy, which really never, ever worked out, trust me. I was just the dorkiest thing in the world, and he was this gorgeous, long-haired, wilderness god. But um, anyway, uh, what's great is that it led me to one of the things that I've always been really good at ever since I started doing it. Um, I'm very silly. I have a really weird sense of humor and a strange imagination. And I'm pretty dorky. So, you know, I have also have uh, no sense of shame. So I was able to just get out there and have fun. Which led me to doing work with my friend Mark Robbins. Which led me to doing stuff and helping to create a Spokane version of uh, improv. We started the Blue Door Theater. I can't remember when. I think it was like 21 years ago which led me to all these wonderful things like adopting my kids and basically improv's just always been a part of my life because if you know how to read your audience you can respond appropriately and so I still teach it to uh, kids K through 5 at my daughter's school Pioneer School and it's just always been a wonderful part of my life so thanks John Roderick for being so hot (laughs) okay anyway thanks Well, that's it for our show. Thank you to all the contributors for sending in their stories. Uh, I really enjoyed listening to them. And I can't wait to hear your stories about proud moments or triumphs in your artistic lives. So see you next week.